Hello everyone, this is Alex Trimble from The Alex Trimble Show, and today, today, today is a good day. I hope that you can you can hear the smile through my voice right now. I'm smiling from ear to ear because today we have a friend and a now mentor of mine who's going to be sharing her thoughts and ideas on increasing innovation within the organization as well as best practices on being a mentor and a mentee. See, today we have with us Cecilia B. Loving. See, Ms. Loving serves as the Deputy Commissioner and Chief Diversity and Inclusion Officer for the New York City Fire Department. Why is that impressive? Well, one, because she's in this role, period. But two, New York City has the second largest fire department in the world. And you know what? It has the largest fire department with over 18,000 employees in the United States. That means the work that she does with her and her colleagues is extremely complex and interesting. And I'm really looking forward to you hearing this phenomenal conversation. So before we get started, as always, if you are interested in being entered to our monthly raffle to receive a free one hour coaching call that's worth $250, then all you have to do is three small things. First, post a comment with your leadership or career advancement question on either LinkedIn, Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. Second, tag me <laughs> in that comment so I make sure I see it. And third, hashtag D-A-T show. That's T-H-E-A-T-S-H-O-W. If you do those small, simple things, you'll be entered to win this one hour free coaching call that's worth $250. It doesn't get much easier than that, folks. <laughs> hey, look, I'm excited to get rolling. I hope you're excited to get rolling. And with no further ado, my friend, Miss Cecilia Loving. Hello, everyone. This is Alex Trumbull from The Alex Trumbull Show. And thank you, one, for being with us today. And you're going to be extremely excited to hear who we have with us today. We have with us today Commissioner Cecilia Loving. How are you doing, madam? I'm doing great. It's really good to see you today, Alex. I'm really excited about being able to talk to you and share my views with your audience, of course. Well, well, we know that you're more excited to share your views with the audience. I, I get that. And I'm just a kind of a, a byproduct, but I appreciate it. So thank you for that. <laughs> you're most welcome. So, madam, let, let's start off with... Um, you and I were just talking before we jumped on camera. Um, you are in New York City, right? Yes, and it is active as you suggested. We are busy, we are on the go. And one of the most awesome things about New York City is its diversity and uh, compassion and inclusion for others. And so it's a great space to be in, particularly now I know we've had some issues um, like any place else in the world. We need to work on our issues about being more compassionate for everyone, especially our Asian American Pacific Islander community that is under attack now. Um, but it, it just gives me a feeling of satisfaction and encouragement when when I walk down the street and I know that I'm surrounded by allies. Well, I, I, I really appreciate you starting off the, the conversation like that. And the reality is you're right. We're going through a very uh, tenuous, troubling, challenging um, time right now, specifically with, you know, within the Asian community. Um, what, you know, I think I would say also with the African-American community, as this is being recorded, mm -hmm. a lot of stuff is going on. Um, so I would say why and what, why and how did you get into the work of uh, being a chief diversity inclusion officer um, for fire department in New York City? Like, why would you get into this work? And, I, and I'm going to really quickly preface this. It's tiring. I mean, watching this stuff and being in this stuff is, is, is emotionally draining for a lot of people. And you are, are leading the charge to, to, to solve some of these challenges in regards to diversity and inclusion. How and why did you step into this realm? 
Uh, that's a great question, Alex. Um, and for me, it's not really tiring. In many respects, it's invigorating. Uh, and, and I believe it is so because I know that it was what I was called to do. Uh, being an African-American woman uh, of a certain age, uh, I was always committed to diversity, equity, and inclusion long before it was called that. And so there has been a commitment since day one and being raised by a mother who was taught by Rosa Parks. Rosa Parks was her sewing teacher in Detroit. And my mother really instilled in us the importance of our culture, our heritage, of, of really the fight for justice and equity for everyone, starting with ourselves, of course, uh, as being the most needed and the most marginalized and denigrated in this country uh, in many respects. And so it was always in my heart. I never realized it would uh, become my profession. So as soon as I graduated from law school in 1985, I was really committed to these issues. I work with an organization called the Practicing Attorneys for Law Students, one of the first um, organizations, not-for-profits, fully committed to supporting diversity, equity, and inclusion for law students making their transition into the legal profession. And we didn't call it that. We looked at it as a mentoring organization and a skills building and community uh, forming organization. But essentially that was what it was. And then I later became the CEO and the chair of the PALS program. While I did my other job as my day job as a lawyer, so I always was on this path toward helping others and, and, and it showed up in the workplace. So I was the usually the senior person, the senior attorney of color, helping my colleagues and counseling them and uh, building uh, relationships for a better sponsorship and uh, opportunities. And I, I, I want to just share also uh, something that happened to me at my first firm, which uh, really helped give me more instruction and, and guidance around how to be a sponsor. Uh, when I was at my first law firm, which was Kramer Levin, I had a, a mentor who uh, was also a sponsor. And he's someone who immediately took me under his wing. I remember on day one, he said to me, who did you clerk for? Who did you clerk for? And I hadn't clerked for anyone. I worked at the Legal Aid Society as a criminal appeals attorney. And I said, no one. He had, on the other hand, clerked for two US Supreme Court justices and uh, a one of the most uh, profound uh, jurists in, in New York federal court. And so he, he mentored me, he made sure I had the best assignments and he, he really demonstrated and role modeled what inclusive leadership is all about in terms of appreciating my skills um, and, and just also being present and making sure that I was, was taught in the right way. And so what happened is that he also gave me the benefit of his privilege because he said to me, I tell my partners no matter what, whether you stay with the firm or you leave, you will always have come from this firm. And so by mentoring and sponsoring me, what he actually did was he mentored and sponsored the generations that would come after me because he gave me those skills that I would then in turn use with others. And so now I'm grateful to say I have many federal and state court judges who are my mentees and many others that I've met along the way. And so experiences like that help shape my perspective of the importance of, of inclusive leadership. 
Well, you know, you, sh- you shared a lot and there's so many different directions we can go right now. Um, but I do want to just really quickly put this little pin in here so we don't forget about it. Um, you just gained a new mentee, just FYI. Um, if you don't know that I'm talking <laughs> That's about. That's wonderful. <laughs> I just have to forewarn you that I also believe in something called reverse mentoring. And so whoever I mentor really becomes my mentor as well. One of my colleagues, our diversity and inclusion manager, Gina Liao, is um, my mentor just as much as I am her mentor. And she teaches me uh, a lot about the technology and also gives uh, a lot of perspective and insight as a millennial who uh, is someone that I call an old soul millennial, but just has her finger on the pulse of just our entire ecosystem in in a different way than I do. So uh, I expect to learn a lot from you, Alex. <laughs> look, look, please don't put the, those expectations up too high. Um, <laughs> but you, you, you talk about mentoring and I, I know I generally like to talk to leaders such as yourself about how to be a good mentor. Um, but I'd love to hear from you, how do you be a good mentee? Like, what makes an effective mentee? Because um, you've been mentored by so many people and you've mentored. So can you share some ideas and thoughts on that? One of the most important things for a mentee to do is not to take it personally, when a mentor may appear to be unresponsive or to be really busy. That's the first thing that I teach my mentees, that you have to be persistent. And it's like, let me put this on your radar again, or let me reach out to you again. And then um, I think that a mentee also should ask for what they need and be a, a lot more proactive Uh, rather than waiting on a mentor to always to guide them. And to me, the most important relationship that a mentor and a mentee can have is friendship. And so um, it's it's being uh, available and, and being a friend the way you would anyone else. I think that those are three of the most important uh, elements. So, so I, I think that is extremely helpful. And I hope everyone, again, who's listening is taking notes. Um, you, you make me think when, when you say a mentee needs to be willing to ask um, for what they want, what they need, I, I could not agree with you more. Um, I, I ran this, uh, so I do some training for the VA and we did what's called a reciprocity ring. If anyone who's ever heard of that, please do some, you know, you can YouTube and figure out what it is, but it's really mm-hmm. great exercise for it teaches you and encourages you to ask for help from others. Um, what we very quickly found out as I started running these myself and while we've evolved how we run these, these little uh, reciprocity rings um, is that we found that most people don't know what they want. And so how do you ask for something if you don't know what you're asking for? Uh, do you have any ideas or strategies for identifying what it is you want or need so that you can ask a mentor? Well, I am really big on research and it's something that I hold all my team accountable for research. And this is my legal background. So it's research, writing and speaking and engaging in as many opportunities, utilizing those skills as possible. And here's the other thing that is incredibly important Uh, for mentees uh, as well as mentors, it is serving, it is giving. My perspective is that we're not in this existence in this planet uh, at this time and in this space merely to take. We are here to give. And if you have that service oriented perspective, then it's going to open up to you also what you need by giving. And so when we look at um, the importance of of research, it's taking every um, challenge, every experience, every opportunity as a vehicle to educate yourself. 
And so if you're constantly researching, it's going to open up more doors around what you need, how you need to improve, what you need to do to be better. And it takes you outside of that proverbial box into learning how to be your best. And then I believe, and this is part of my own theology, that I believe in something that I call perfect divine order. Then things will begin to come into your, your life on your radar, on your path, different people, individuals, and opportunities that will uh, help you move into the right direction and constantly remind you about what it is that you need. Uh, and, and you know, you when you asked the first question, you asked me um, how I really got into this space. And uh, I paused for a second, but my answer was not fully complete. And I want to add that because I have this perspective because first of all, I'm a lawyer and I spent uh, many years practicing law uh, over now well over 30 years. I am also a minister. And in addition to being a, a lawyer and a minister, I also have a background in writing and in the fine arts. And so I, my, I have a bachelor's of fine arts and a master's of fine arts. And so what is happening, a lot of people say to me, wow, how did you leave this or how did you leave this particular field? But the reality is that in this role, I engage all of those gifts and talents and experiences at once. And Oftentimes, I continue to expand my knowledge and my perspective by always going back to the drawing board to learn more. We can never learn enough. As, as my mother uh, used to say when I was growing up, nobody knows everything but a fool. And so uh, by, by continuing to research, you know, we use neuroscience in the work that we do. We use mindfulness practices in the work that we do. We constantly research storytelling. And uh, we're always building on, you know, how can we be creative? We're using games, we're using play in order to advance our conversation around emotional intelligence. And so um, that's the beauty of life is just an unfolding opportunity to learn more, to create more, but most importantly to me, to do that in order to serve others. Again, I think this is this is phenomenal information and, and advice you're sharing. Um, you, you when you, when you say research, the way I'm also interpreting, and please correct me if I'm wrong. Um, it, when you're saying research, you're not just saying reading books or listening to things. I, I kind of take that as action as well, um, doing stuff. Because as you do stuff, you're collecting data on whether you like it, whether you don't like it, if you're good, what would right, what would wrong. Um, I actually literally just, um, I, I had my first award campaign I, um, that was sponsored by WEPA this year for federal employees, the 2020, 2021 Unsung Hero Federal Service Award. And this was something I've been wanting to do for years, and I was nervous. I did it. I pushed it out. We had literally a week to advertise this award. Um, and over that week, we had over 500 um, individuals come to the site to try to fill out an application. So it was, it was phenomenally successful. And I'm looking forward to sharing those, those, those winners. Um, but I learned so much through doing. And so I, I, I guess I want to ask you on, on that note is, where is that, that line? Or is there a line between the, the researching, reading, writing, things like that, and then taking a step out and just trying it and learning from, from your mistakes and doing? I think the application has to be constant. And um, it's a balance between all of those things. And as, as, a, as a young lawyer, um, it was almost instinctive that I would research because you want to make sure that you got enough information. And every time you're working on a new matter, it was a whole new feel. Maybe it was pharmacokinetics and how drugs move through the bloodstream or the Republic of Chile or, or working for an entertainment industry. And you had to master all those different industries. And so 
as I would research a different issue, then I, I would come to a place of satisfaction inside where I felt that I had exhausted it. And then once you do that, then it's applying it. Maybe it's applying it in a writing, maybe in, in addition in conversations with colleagues and, and also uh, most importantly, reaching out to, to experts in the field. And I find that's something that's really valuable uh, to me in the diversity and inclusion space um, in terms of my experience as a lawyer, because I always work with the top experts. And so I have no uh, hesitancy about calling up an expert and, and, and digging a little bit deeper. And, and I'll give you an example. One of the things that we're working on in terms of analyzing and expanding our metrics and how to, um, to get better success is using a root cause analysis. And so we have, for example, a task force on racial equity and inclusion. And rather than just relying on anecdotes or complaints or working with our, um, our affiliated organizations, our affinity groups, we, uh, we looked at the organization from the perspective of various root cause analyses after we had identified different areas that we needed to dig deeper in. So in doing a root cause analysis, we first researched it. Some of my colleagues uh, have studied it in, in graduate school, but we reached out also to uh, an organization that focuses on root cause analysis, and we're doing additional training in those uh, metrics. We also reached out to some of the experts in the field because where we have some accountability with the organization that's training them, we want to improve our skills even beyond that. So right now we're having conversations with, you know, some of the professors who uh, specialize in this area. Some of our research might mean going to an organization. So say, for example, we're working on innovation. We do innovation labs and diversity and inclusion. And we went to IDEO, which is an organization, a company that focuses on ideas. And, and we walked through the company and we looked at the spaces where this, you know, amazing organization, which I believe created the, uh, the computer mouse. And so they've been around for many years and they are hired to innovate. We wanted to see what their space looked like, like what tools do they use in their work environment that are more conducive to innovation. And so we also like to, to brainstorm around ways to dig deeper and, 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 and that's really the, the, the beauty and the energy of our work. And I think that that's one of the reasons why we don't get as exhausted because we're not hung up on the effect, but we are, we're motivated by trying to co-create solutions together. Thank you for tuning in to The Alex Tremble Show. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsors. The results are in. Research has found that networking is one of the four skills absolutely required to successfully advance in your career. However, when asked, most government employees state that they don't network because they believe that networking is for extroverts and for people who care more about their own careers than the organization's mission. But what if there was a way to ethically network without looking self-absorbed and being a super extrovert? Well, there is. Alex Tremble has created a seven-week online networking course specifically designed to give ambitious leaders like yourself the skills needed to become a strategic networker. This course uses time-tested and research-backed strategies to help you identify, build, and maintain critical relationships with influential leaders. Visit alextremble.com courses networking to learn more about his networking model today. Use the discount code PODCASTFAMILY on the checkout screen to receive a 20% discount. Don't delay. Enroll today at alextremble.com courses networking. Federal open season is over, but you can apply for WEPA life insurance year-round. WEPA has been insuring the future of federal employees for more than 75 years. WEPA can be used as a supplement or a replacement for Fegley and can cost less. 
Last year, members who switched saved $375 on average. Apply for WEPA Group Term Life Insurance and see how much you could save by visiting WAEPA.org today. And now back to The Alex Tremble Show with your host, Alex Tremble. But look, what you're saying is awesome. Yeah, and, and I, I say it's a little tongue in cheek, um, but, but how do you do it, right? Like so many organizations want to do what you're doing. They want to be innovative. They want to be in a space where they're creative. And, and, they, and they, they take the time to go visit organizations that are doing things far, be, uh, uh, um, far beyond them in certain areas and learn from them. Um, but then they're busy, right? There's just so much stuff that has to get done. You know, we're innovation's important. We're going to do that, right? Um, let, let's plan that for next week. And then next week comes and then let's... Let's plan it for next month. How do you develop your culture so that you guys can remain innovative and stay moving in those directions? Well, you know, Alex, that's a great question because I think, in fact, I know in the diversity, equity, and inclusion space, the the chief officer, whoever is in charge of it, should report to the CIO or the commissioner, whoever that person is at the top. And the reason is for, um, it's exactly what you just laid out. You're going to be short-circuited by other priorities if you're not reporting to that person at the top. And the way we get our initiatives done is we have a fire commissioner who's awesome, who says to us, fine, yes, go ahead. Yes, you can do this, you know? Um, And so the other thing that we have learned to do is to work with our key stakeholders so that we bring them aboard and we get their buy-in as we work through the process so that they have more skin in the game and are committed to working with us as opposed to feeling like they're being told um, to do something. Uh, So for example, when I first got in this role, when we didn't have a diversity and inclusion office that was already uh, well-organized and well-established, it was relatively new. So one of the first things I did was I met with our leadership and I I talked to uh, the leaders throughout the organization. So most people think of a fire department as being, you know, like a couple of firehouses. We have almost 18,000 employees. We're the second largest in the world. We're the largest in the nation. And so uh, when we just look at our, our top division chiefs, we're talking, you know, about well over a hundred chiefs. And then for our uh, our company commanders who really run that day-to-day activity and overseeing the firehouses, we have over um, 250 facilities. It's about um, 600 or so. And then lieutenants, we're talking about another, you know, maybe 2,000. Uh, and so, I began a listening tour and, and, and what I wanted to do, which was really important, was to focus on what we're doing that works as opposed to the shame and the blame that accompanies what we're doing that doesn't work. And, and, and my question is, because we say, and others have confirmed this for me, that we're, if we're number one in the world when it comes to responding to emergencies, then we're doing something that works. And so I would walk around the room and ask our leadership, what are you doing that works? And then once they told me, I said, now you've just told me what inclusive leadership is all about. You just told me what's necessary to build a successful team. And so Google did a study on how you build successful teams. And one of the most important things that they came up with in this this study called the Aristotle Project is that psychological safety is important. Well, guess what? 
my questions really evoke the same thing from our company commanders, authentic trust. We have to be able to bring our best selves to the workplace. We have to be able to know each other and trust each other because our lives depend upon it. Supportive relationships. At FDNY, we, we like to say, and we do treat each other like family. So how can we use that approach and improve it even more? Excellent training. Our training doesn't suffer. It gets better because we're more diverse. Positive motivation, bringing positive energy and those mindfulness practices that help reduce implicit bias. Also community engagement. As one of our company commanders said to me, people think that this job is about them but it's not about them. It's about the communities that we serve. And then finally, dedicated success, which is the accountability of our leaderships, leadership and training our leadership to be more inclusive. And so um, those are conversations that I was able to utilize to develop our inclusive culture strategy. And so it's so important to me that whatever initiatives you do, that they be born out of the culture, out of the environment, so that we're all accountable and we're all on the same page. Uh, one of the most uh, important lessons for me in the DEI space is that one person doesn't do this job, that everyone is invested in it and it has to be an essential part of all operations integral to everything that you do so again thank you so much for everything you've shared thus far because i and i'm learning so much from you right now so i know everyone else who's listening and watching is as well so thank you so much for this um i i have there's two questions i really want to ask but I wanted to throw in this one last one. I, I try to be, I try to be real as, as real as I can um, on these, these conversations. And uh, we talk about diversity, equity, inclusion, and, you know, there's a lot of courses and conversations about kind of understanding those around you and so on and so forth. And if I can share a quick story, I mean, this literally happened today. Um, so I, I go for, I went for a walk this morning. Um, I uh, had my, some jeans on, some walking shoes. It was a little cold. So I had my black hoodie on. Um, I had my black gloves on, winter gloves, because I do not like the cold. <laughs> and, and I was walking around. And, and as I walked around my, my own little neighborhood, um, I started thinking, I was like, you know what? I'm really glad that I, I'm in a place where I don't have to worry about anyone calling the police on me because, um, because of how I look. Because you know, I, I, I can see someone could be afraid of this black guy walking around the neighborhood with black hoodie on some gloves. Um, and I say, well, what would I do if the police were called on me? Like, how, would, would I still want to live here? Like, would I still feel comfortable? And those kind of thoughts were going through my head, which is really, I think it's because of what's going on right now across the country. And I, I, I made a turn to then actually walk back to my house. And I noticed a police car turned down the street with me. And they drove really, really slow, creeping, um, which they were look either looking for someone or they were, um, I don't know what they're doing. Um, so they were driving really slow and, and I kind of waved at them, let them know, hey, I see you. And then I kept walking and they kept just driving really slow next to me. Um, I started getting a little nervous and I kept walking, kept checking behind me. Um, and eventually a police car just slowly turned back around and left the street. Like it, it literally came in to do that real slow creep and then it left. And, and in my mind, I'm not sure I called my best friend, told my wife about it when I got back to the house. It's like, well, am I being paranoid? Um, or, or had someone actually called the police on me and the police officer was like, hey, he's not doing nothing wrong. Let me get out of here. Um, I share that story uh, because we, we are trying, I feel like we're trying to, you know, this diversity, equity, inclusion movement, we're trying to help people understand different people's perspectives, but at, at some point you'll never understand the full perspective. You know, what's good, there's, there's, a, there's a coup in Myanmar right now. And, you know, we won't understand really what those people are going through because I've, I've never been through a coup. So how do you have those conversations um, when you, th those details, the, 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 the thought even in my head that I need to call a friend, I'm, I'm worried, is something going to happen to me? Like that is something that is kind of unique to a particular group of people. Like, how do you deal with these kind of situations? 
I, I think that what, um, and, and Alex, I'm really sorry that that happened to you. And, and we know that um, as, as Black people, that it is unfortunately par for the course. And what you point out in terms of, of how do you have those conversations, to me, the first step is also having those conversations. And um, to me, that is, um, is, is so important, it's essential. We call them at FDNY courageous conversations. And we try to create uh, a variety of opportunities to have them. One of the things, the, one of the tools that I love is uh, taken from our indigenous, our Native American family, uh, which is uh, the healing circle, or which is also known as the circles that are part of restorative justice. And the reason why I love this uh, vehicle for conversation is because there is a talking piece and the power is in the talking piece. So hierarchy doesn't matter. You only can speak when you have the talking piece. There is a circle keeper who facilitates what we call and uh, prompts or doesn't openings helps us lead and put values in the circle. But otherwise, it's a space for deep listening. And a lot of times we talk and we're more interested in what we have to say. But what these circles do is build a safe space to hold what others have to say. And you find that the most healing that takes place may not be what comes out of you, but what is poured into the circle from someone else. And so I have really um, begun the process of shifting our culture so that we have more uniform members who are trained circle keepers. Um, so now, you know, when we started out, I was the only circle keeper. And then, uh, but now we have about 30 of them and we're going to continue to expand that. We are expanding it so that we're having something that we call Bravest Women Talk. We have uh, the courageous conversations around, around racial inclusion and equity every two weeks. Um, we are having um, more conversations in our, our firehouses and our EMS stations, we're trying to encourage that by having uniform members. So for example, um, just this week, we were having an API circle and there was a firefighter, a lieutenant who was in the circle, but who was also in the firehouse at the same time. So he told us as we ended our circle where we shared and really poured a lot, he said, I'm about to do roll call in the firehouse and I'm going to do that in circle. And so what begins to happen in circle is that you really build a strong vessel and community of trust. I'm really grateful that I uh, am also being trained by a Native American named Strong Oak, who's with an organization called Walking in Balance, so that we can preserve even more of the indigenous traditions around circle keeping. Circle keeping, first of all, it helps build community. And it's important to begin in that space so you develop trust. It also helps heal harm. That's sort of like the next level. So once you've begun this uh, community of just a circle keeping and, and, and talking and sharing, you know, you, you realize that you share common ground. And then it also helps resolve conflict. So that when you have those issues that are a little bit more divisive and more triggering, it's all, the vehicle was already in place. 
gratefully, our mayor has uh, issued an executive order, I believe it's executive order number 63, that requires all city agencies to use restorative practices. And therefore, we're all will be having to use these circles. And I'm grateful that we are at FDNY, we're already ahead of the curve because we have already begun using them. I just got, just last night, I got an email from an organization that I belong to called the Diversity and Inclusion uh, Public Service Leaders in, in New York. And they've asked me to train them in doing circle. Uh, last week, we did uh, a citywide circle. So we had about 400 people who were in the circle. And we've been getting requests to do circles around AAPI um, issues. And, and, you know, what you say is so important that we do have to have the conversations. And so one of the things that I can share with you uh, is a virtual book that you can share with the audience that has the link and they can just click on and not only see the tools, but we also embed videos in our virtual books and we have a sample circle so that they can see exactly what it's like. And we have a similar tool. We have many of these virtual books, but one of them that has been popular recently deals with AAPI and, and how to deal with uh, seven steps for dealing with a lot of the issues in terms of learning history, but also that self-care um, that, that's very important. And, and that's really one of the powerful things also about the circle is that it is holistic. And so it's not just talking about, you know, what impacts you mentally, but how it's impacting you physically and spiritually. And so you can pour whatever your heart tells you into that circle. And uh, when you build and establish a community around circles, it doesn't even matter if someone is missing. Those who are circle keepers will acknowledge that once you're committed to that circle, the circle is unbroken and you're always part of it. And so a lot of these different healing uh, and holistic techniques, I believe are really important in the diversity, equity and inclusion space. It's not an intellectual exercise as you just indicated. We have to step into the shoes. We have to be more empathetic. We have to educate ourselves in a, in a much more deeper and powerful way than we have in the past. And so, uh, as I mentioned to you before we started, I have just, uh, I'm about to drop, my next book is called The Power of Inclusion, yes. which is on uh, meditating with compassion and, and healing harm and also, um, and, and leading with, with courage. And so I, I lift up in the book, all of these various holistic methods that have served us well like circle keeping, like storytelling, like mind, mindfulness practices as well. Uh, th thank you for mentioning that because I had two questions to ask you. That was one of them. Because I, I, a Birdie told me that you're about to drop a book. So I, I, I wanted to ask, can you tell us any more detail about it? Like when it's coming out, where they can, people can get it? I, I'd love to know. <laughs> well, um, my goal is for it to come out uh, by May, by early May. And it will be on Amazon. I have to have an author's page, Cecilia B. Loving, uh, capital B period. And uh, that's where I have all of my books. And uh, that one will definitely be there. I have another book that I wrote at the beginning of the pandemic called Unbroken Circles. It's a book of poetry because what was happening in Circle is that oftentimes I would create a poem just for an opening and a closing and people love them so much that I decided to create a book that uh, you can use just for those opening and those closings, just to just acknowledge healness, healing and build um, community. So... <laughs> 
again, thank you so much for all the time that you've spent with us today. I know we're about to wrap up. Um, I, I do have one question, then I want to open the floor to you. If there's anything you'd like to share before we wrap up. Um, I thought today would be the perfect time for you to start mentoring me. Um, <laughs> I um, have been blessed to uh to, to serve, I, I've been asked to serve um, as the chief culture officer for the second largest conservation corps in the country. And by the time this, this, uh, this interview is posted, I would be there serving as the chief culture officer. And so I'm so excited. I love it. I'm excited for you. Congratulations. <laughs> I greatly appreciate it. And so on that note, what advice do you have for me um, walking into an organization um, as the chief culture officer, what would you do? What would be the first thing that you do? Well, to me, the first thing is really to, to listen and engage and learn the culture and to begin to know who your stakeholders are, to, to introduce yourself, um, but most importantly, to allow others to be introduced themselves to you. And, um, it's, um, it's incredibly important to realize that you are the vehicle of change. Not that you have to bring the change, but you are the vehicle to lead the process. Because when I first stepped into this space, I thought I had to have all the answers, but you really have to know how to pose the questions. And what's more important than, than talking is also just listening and getting a sense of, of what's important. And I think also developing a team of, of close allies and, and being creative about it. So when I uh, first started as Chief Diversity and Inclusion Officer at FDNY, I basically, it was an office of me and an assistant. I didn't have anyone else in my office. I did have some, some employee lines that I could fill and a limited budget in that regard. But what I began to do was to think creatively about how to use the resources that were all already at the agency. So for example, uh, we have a number of our members who are interested in serving as trainers, serving as EEO counselors. And so we began to develop different groups to support our work in that way. So I created the a diversity and inclusion uh, training unit. I created, um, we, we are court ordered to have a diversity advocate, but what about inclusion? The diversity advocate helps in the recruitment and when, when new firefighters start. So I created inclusion advocates. Now I have people asking me if they can be an inclusion advocate. So those numbers are growing. And to me, you just have to think creatively based on the information that you're given uh, around how you can continue to serve and expand based on the culture that you're in the midst of. And so it's, it's exciting. And, and, and I think the other thing to do is to continue to build community as you've been doing in such a brilliant way outside of your organization. And so you can share resources and, and just continue to grow. Um, based on all the information that you're given, different things that others are doing, but also what you bring that is based on your experience and your expertise and your compassion. And, and that's one of the lessons, interestingly, that I learned about ministry. It was so easy when I first started out as a minister to quote others and to look at how, um, you know, this minister or, you know, this um, positive or motivational speaker was talking about a certain issue. But actually, my mother taught me this, and that is to rely on myself and the ideas that I'm given. And so um, there's so many awesome ways that we can be more innovative. And you know, now that I'm your mentor, I get to share a lot of that with you, knowing that um, I'll be learning a lot from you as well. So I'm really excited about all that you're about to do. 
Well, again, thank you so much for joining us today, Ms. Cecilia. I, I do want to open up the floor for you and provide you with some room. Is there anything that you'd like to share? Any last wisdom, words of advice, wisdoms in career, whatever it may be, anything you'd like to share? One thing that I would like to share, um, and, and, and it's important to me because I think it's the foundation of everything that I do and the, the foundation of uh, what we're here on this planet to accomplish. And that is just the energy of love and its importance. And I know we don't like to use that four letter word in the workspace, but to me, that's really what inclusion is all about. And we all have within us that full capacity to, to love and to send that loving energy. And so just as the, in the final words as, as part of this interview, I just wanna send that loving energy to you and to your family, to all of the great work that you are here doing and uh, will continue to do in amazing ways. And then send that loving energy just out to your entire audience and just, and just see everybody just being fulfilled and uplifted and motivated and blessed and growing in the strength of whatever they've learned from, from our time together and how they'll continue to just pour out that love and that energy. And then we're gonna even move beyond that circle and just send the power and presence of that love out into our entire uh, country. We're going to send it out into our entire planet and just see everyone just feeling and shifting and changing, which is what is happening now in on this planet with volcanoes erupting and all kinds of stuff happening around us is shifting so that we're going to manifest change. But we don't want to ask what the future has in store for us. Instead, we want to affirm what we have in store for the future. And my uh, blessing, my hope is that it is one filled with love, is one filled with compassion, and is one filled with peace and grace for all of us. Thank you so much, Alex. Thank you. And look, for anyone who's listening right now and everyone who's listening right now, if you didn't believe that Miss Cecilia was a, was a, was a minister, before, right, what she just said, I, I, I know you believe it now, okay? So, so I would like to end, as I always do, with saying thank you to you. Um, uh, thank you, Miss Cecilia, for, for being here and sharing all the advice that you did today. Thank you to the audience, everyone who's here listening. Um, I, I always want to also thank our, our sister podcast, the Fed Upward podcast. Again, some really great stuff. You go fedupward.com. And... As I always like to share with everyone, please don't just look back, reach back. If you found something of value during this talk, don't keep it to yourself. Don't, don't look and say, oh, that person could benefit from it, but I'm going to keep it for myself because I want to be successful. Um, reach back. Find, find someone to mentor. We've talked about mentoring today. Find someone to mentor. If there's someone mentoring you, reverse mentoring. Share this with them. Don't let good information, don't let valuable advice go to waste by like, holding it only to yourself. Um, and as I end every session I do, stay strong, stay positive, and definitely stay moving. Thank you, everyone. Thanks for listening. Find us online at thealextrembleshow.com and be sure to share what you've learned with at least one other person today. Check back on the first and third Wednesday of each month for new episodes. Until next time, stay strong, stay positive, and definitely stay moving. <laughs>